0: All right, go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 17. As we consider idolatry in the land, Judges 17, we're going to look at 17 and 18. Hopefully you had a chance to read ahead of time. If not, that's okay. We're just going to read 17, 1 through 6. Judges 17, verse 1, these are the words of God. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and spoke of it in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. It was I who took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly set apart the silver from my hand as holy to Yahweh for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. So now I will return them to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and ordained one of his sons, and he became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Our Father in God, you are the God of all wisdom and all grace and all mercy. You have established your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the great snake crusher. And for that we are thankful. Father, you and your Son, have sent us the Holy Spirit as the giver of all those graces, all of those mercies, and all of that wisdom. Your Spirit has granted to us the benefits of Christ's work, so instead of presuming upon those riches, we cling to them with fervor and hope. Help us as we look to the word you have given us. We magnify you, King Jesus, and we rely on you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it's good to be back in our study of Judges this evening. This is the 10th sermon in our series, and Lord willing, next week we'll finish the book with the last three chapters. And I want to begin tonight by reminding you of perhaps the most significant theme of the book. There are a lot of images and echoes of Scripture in the book of Judges. Uh, The story of Saul, David, Solomon, the, the temple project... All of those stories in the future loom over the pages as certainly Samuel, Samuel is probably our author, he wants to prepare us for those narratives. But those are anticipations to what is to come in the future. We also have uh, retrosipations, uh, that's a philosophy term, and it's simply reference to that which comes beforehand, that which was behind the five books of Moses. The book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, even echoes of Genesis, all of these things are um, kind of pointing forward into the uh, story of Judges. And the most prevailing theme of the book of Judges is the most obvious one, and that's the promise of Genesis 3.15, which reads, "...and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." So that is the antithesis that shapes all of human history. The battle of the seeds marks the old covenant and not the new, because Jesus defeated Satan and cast him down. He is an enemy that has been bound. But in Judges, this seed battle heats up. And that's the whole theme of the book of Judges. In the Old Testament, uh, you remember the great, one of the greatest battles of the seeds was between David and Goliath. And uh, the, Goliath's armor, and you, the King James brings this out. I actually haven't looked at the LSB to see, but the King James Version brings this out. But many English translations don't bring this out. But Goliath's armor is said to have a scaly texture to it, a scaly design, a snake-like design and aesthetic to it, which is undoubtedly a reference to the verse in Genesis. So we have the seed of the woman, David, crushing the head of the serpent. And Goliath was just a very big snake in that, in that situation. But here in Judges, remember what we've seen so far. Ehud has killed Aiglon, um, the king of Moab. He's a political leader. Jael crushes the skull of Sisera with a tent peg. Uh, Gideon's war involved the destruction of four political leaders that were on the east side of the Jordan. Abimelech, the snake, he gets his head crushed by a woman who threw a rock used for making flour down on, from the tower and crushing Abimelech's head. And then, of course, Samson, the story of Samson. Samson's defeat of the Philistines with rocks uh, included the five heads of state. Remember what he did. He pushed the pillars and the rocks came coming, coming down. And this is obviously a, a snake head crushing moment. So Judges typifies what happens when an anointed deliverer runs up against a snake. What happens when an anointed deliverer runs up against a snake? When the people are faithful, they win the battle. When the people are unfaithful, they invariably lose the battle. Now, our passage tonight and next week both constitute the third and final section of Judges. So we're, 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 at, we're at the home stretch now. Uh, chapter 17 and 18 go together. And chapters 19, 20, and 21 go together. Now, both of those groupings are appendices to the book. Uh, Remember, we had two prologues in the front of the book, two sort of introductory sections for the book itself, but now we have two epilogues. And the story tonight involves the Danites, or the Danites, because before we got, got to the Samson story, all of us are trying to wonder what in the world happened to the tribe of Dan. Nothing, virtually nothing is said about them up to this point other than Samson. Other than Samson being a Danite, we don't know if the tribe of Dan obeyed God. We have all the other tribes involved in the war, on the various wars and battles. We have all, but Dan is nowhere to be found. What is going on with Dan? Uh, So we don't know if they followed through with what God had commanded them. They, like everybody else at the end of Joshua, were told what to do, what land was theirs, and how they needed to conquer it. We don't know what they did. So the, the story tonight, you need to know, is not in chronological order. This is not after the Samson story. It's after it narratively, but it's actually probably what's taking place in the beginning of the book. And there's reasons for that and evidence for that. After Samson's great victory, where he crushed thousands of Philistines, crushed the heads of state, what happened to Israel? Now Samuel tells us that story, first and second Samuel, but the last judge, the last judge we meet, the twelfth and final judge, was Samson. And like the other judges, there's this incomplete salvation and deliverance. There was, like a, 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 there was deliverance, but it wasn't eternal deliverance. So Samson could only do so much. So we're left wondering how all of this happened. How did, this, how did things get so bad in the book of Judges? How could God's people be so inept? Have you ever wondered? How could God's people be so inept? Well, ask yourself that in the mirror first right, before we start asking other people. How am I so inept? But how? How could God's people continue to see God at work and yet fail to worship him responsibly? That is a great question that looms over the pages of Judges. Um, these last two epilogue sections they deal with the main issue. These two sections describe what life was like on the ground because the stories have been incredible. I mean, I've appreciated some of our uh, some of the kids here who have shared their enjoyment of the series just because there's so much excitement in Judges, and and that's great. And sort of these moment, epic moments of battle, Lord of the Rings style. You know, these things happen, but but what's going on on the streets? Like, we have these great moments of victory, but what else is going on? Well, these are the, this section of the book is what tells us what is going on, what life was like on the ground. They describe the spiritual conditions that made the deliverance necessary. So we're, no doubt we're supposed to read these last two sections and conclude that life without God is bleak and disastrous. So that's kind of what we're supposed to think. And highlighted here is the failure of the Levites. You should be done reading Leviticus, excuse me, Judges, and think, what happened to the Levites? Why have they allowed this nonsense to go on today? Why are pastors and pulpits not teaching the whole counsel of God? Same question we could ask today. But the Levites, the Levites were supposed to represent the husband, that is God, to the bride, that is Israel. So when they fail, the entire thing collapses. Now there are two main theological problems that plague the book of Judges. And we get each of those in these last two sections. The main culprit is the Levite clan, no doubt. But tonight's passage pertains to idolatry. Idolatry. Next week's final section deals with whoredom and spiritual adultery to be distinguished. The Levites are simply unconcerned with how God is to be worshipped and thus they fail to guard, like Adam was supposed to do, the worship of the people of God. That was their task. They didn't get land when they went into Israel. Their task was the tabernacle and then later the temple. So, they fail to guard the worship of Israel, just like Adam had failed to guard the worship of his family. Second, the Levites are unconcerned about the ethics God expects of his people, and as a consequence that, uh, of all that false worship, they fail to guard the law, and thus they fail to guard the morality of the people of God. So the worship of God and the morality of the people of God. Idolatry and spiritual harlotry, that's what we're dealing with and Judges. So let's just quickly move through our passage, and I'm going to, again, summarize as we go, but this is chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 17, we meet Micah. Micah's family idolatry is pronounced. This is the establishment of a false and unlawful sanctuary. They were not allowed to do what he was doing, but it explains what the spiritual problems were. In verses 1 through 4, we see the dishonesty of Micah. Uh, he confesses to stealing his mother's 1,100 pieces of silver. He heard, he heard his mom call down a curse on whoever stole it, and he felt guilty. So he returns it to her, only after hearing the curse. But she then takes some of that money and turns, goes to the silversmith to make an idol. Now, this, when you're reading this, Micah's, Micah's situation and story explains and exemplifies Israel's condition. This is normal. Total pagan idolatry has come in and taken over people's hearts and, and their homes. Micah is a pragmatist. He is a half-hearted man, a hollow man. He's a man without principles and convictions. He stole money from his mother. He's a, a total subjectivist. Uh, his mother, though, is no better. She's kind of in the same boat. She doesn't demand repentance before God. She enables her son's idolatry. She even calls on the name of Yahweh, the covenant name. There's no restitution to be paid. There's no, really, there's no trespass offering, which was required in the Levitical law. So <laughs> she's no better either. It's just a family of idolatry. It gets better or worse. <laughs> the family is said to worship Yahweh, not Baal, not the Asheroth, and not Dagon, the God of the Philistines. The family is said to worship Yahweh, but what's the condition of this worship? It's not good. That's all a mere formality. It's like, you know, people taking the, uh, the census. You know, what religion are you? Well, you know, I kind of grew up a little bit of Catholic. I don't really go to church. I guess I'm Christian. <laughs> Christian in name only, that sort of thing. Now, the family here is in direct violation of the second commandment. She also gives only 200 pieces of silver to the Lord. She keeps most of it for herself. It's just a whole mess here. Her heart is far from the God she claims to worship. Note that. Her heart is far from the God she claims to worship. She wants Yahweh to rubber stamp her idolatry. That's one of the worst forms of idolatry. God, just rubber stamp whatever I'm doing. Approve of it. Ding, 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 ding. Everything I do is good and righteous and pure in my eyes. Now, like Samson, interestingly enough, now the Lord is betrayed for the same amount of silver. You may recall the 1,100 pieces of silver from the story of Samson. Look at verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols. It gets better. And ordained one of his sons, and he became priest. Not Not his job. Not his job. The family constructs a false tabernacle, Built out of silver, uh, silver is a very valuable item for sure. It's second only to gold, but it's a violation of the law of God. According to Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, Micah's actions are actually a capital offense. He is committing high-handed blasphemy in the worship of Israel. Uh, they should die for their idolatry because Yahweh's worship is to be pure. It's to be undiluted and on his terms. Now, ironically here, this is where we kind of chuckle. They think that this is life-giving worship. He thinks this is life-giving worship. All these idols that are made to Yahweh and His glory. I'm even going so far as to ordain my son because we need a priest. The next section is all about the establishment of a false priesthood. Micah needs a fake priest for his fake tabernacle. So his son is put in place, but his son is only put in place for a minute. Look at verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Do we have a man who is doing whatever is right in his own eyes here? Yes, we do. Micah's doing that. That's the problem that plagues the entire book. Everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. Micah thought what he was doing was right. He thought it. So he did it. This is well and good. And now in this section, we learn that he desecrates his family. So Micah, as the story goes on, he makes a shrine for the idol, the idols. He hires a Levite priest. His name we learn later, though, which is interesting. So he, he stumbles upon a priest, the priest stumbles upon him. The Levite was traveling from Bethlehem, and he became his personal priest. Not allowed, okay? <laughs> Not allowed. Uh, for the Israelite religion, worship was centered at the tabernacle, and it mattered because that's where God's presence dwelt. That was where the Ark of the Covenant, upon which God's presence dwelt inside that Holy of Holies. Remember, during the time of Samson, the Ark was captured by the Philistines, showing just how bad things had gotten. That's in the first part of 1 Samuel. So in making his own tabernacle, Michael, uh, Micah has tried to worship God on his own terms and conditions. He wants his son to be a priest, but later he finds a Levite. Okay, so he worships God as he wants God to be. He swaps out people, whatever he deems necessary. We have a, a pragmatist on our hands, like a kid with Plato, making whatever he wants. You just sort of make your own religion. That's what it is. The Levites, they were fathers. They were to be pastors in the land of Israel. They, which means that they should not be enabling such profane activities. But here is a Levite who is enabling these activities. Even the Levites are doing whatever is right in their own eyes. That tells you how bad things are. Now, James Jordan makes a brilliant ob- observation here. In verse 7, we read that the, the Levite was a young man from Bethlehem. 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 It means house of bread. Which, of course, was, uh, if you recall, where our Savior was born. Uh, The Levites, they're supposed to be feeding Israel bread, the bread of life, but what's coming from this bread house is filth. David redeems this problem, but Jesus is really the one who does so. Now the Levite comes to enhance this do-it-yourself-at-home religion. Kind of like go to Home Depot, get yourself a priest. Do-it-yourself-at-home religion. Micah, he wants conformity to his standards, not God's standards. That's the Perennial problem that runs throughout the scriptures. and verse 13, look what he says. This is his rubber stamping of the idolatry. He says, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. He kind of washes his hands and says, Ah, I've done it. I have this tabernacle that I've made. I got my own little officially licensed Levite priest. Bought it on eBay. This is what relativism and delusion looks like. It's Samson with his eyes gouged out. It is a minuscule religious effort to try and win the favor of the God that Micah has created. And this is reductionistic religion at its finest. We'll come back to that later. Now, chapter 18 continues to tell the story of idolatry in the land. And it highlights the tribe of Dan. So we finally get to learn about what's going on with the tribe of Dan, and we learn about their tribal idolatry. We're reminded again in verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Dan's disobedience early on has led them to perpetual exile. They are nomads and wanderers. They have not done what God told them to do, and now they don't have anywhere to be. They're just wandering around aimlessly. They are the weakest of the tribes, by the way. They're the weakest of the tribes. But later in the chronology, we learn that Samson was one of them. So we shouldn't disparage them wholeheartedly. So it's kind of funny in scripture the weakest tribe produces the strongest man. Interesting connection. And, and Samson did finish well, despite a little hiccup along the way. Now, in verse 2, these men of Dan, the Danites are called men of valor. <laughs> Which is a joke, probably, from Samuel. Samuel's writing this and probably laughing. <laughs> these men of valor. They are not. They are cowards. They are weak. They are proven to be utter faithful, uh, faithless. The man who thinks himself to be a man of valor is not a man of valor. Right? It's like having a plaque on your wall. I'm the most humble man to exist. You, you sort of lose the plaque immediately, right? That's how it goes. Now, so the tribe of Dan, they're on the move. They're trying to find a place to settle. And they're unable to drive out the Philistines that they were told to do so because of a a lack of faith. So the tribe then moves north from that area, and they're looking for this new land. Now, there are two visits to Micah in this chapter. And I don't know if you read it this week, and maybe that was confusing, but it is kind of an interesting narrative. But in verses 1 through 10, we have this first visit five scouts are sent out. They're trying to find land. Five go out. They stay the night with Micah. They inquire with the do-it-yourself-at-home religious priest, asking if they're going to be successful. Hey, priest, who knows? Maybe they're having some bread and wine and relaxing, and they, hey, priest, uh, are we going to be successful in finding land? Right? we, We have this endeavor in front of us. We need to find a place to settle. They want an answer from the ephod. Remember, Gideon had made an ephod wrongly as well for his hometown in Oprah. But that's a different story. But it's the same principle. They want an answer from the ephod. And even though they should already know the answer, they should know that if we're faithful to God, we'll have it. But the Levite confirms their success. The priest says, yes, you'll be successful. What we have here is confirmation bias looking for answers that only fit your preconceived notions. The priest will tell them whatever they want to hear. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want any trouble. So he tickles their ears. But to, te- to demonstrate their complete ineptitude, they attempt to conquer Laish, which is an easy target. It's like us trying to take Midland. We can take Midland. <laughs> it's an easy target. However, it was not part of their allotment, which was given at the end of Joshua. So they're already disobeying again that is, they want covenantal blessings without covenantal obedience. They are still not doing what God has instructed them to do. Still not. In verses 11 through 26, we have the second visit to Micah. The tribe is victorious in Laish, and the priest was right. Of course he was. (laughs) They confiscate, though. This is where it gets really funny. They steal Micah's idols. They persuade the priest to join them instead. And this despite Micah's objection to the matter. (laughs) Micah stole, right? Dan stole from Micah. That's what idolatry does to people. Ironically, the priest is only serving himself and no one else. He wasn't really serving Micah, nor will he serve the Danites. He's all in it for himself. He doesn't care for the glory of God. He only cares for his own glory. And then look at verse 12. They named the place Ma'ane Dan. Ma'ane Dan you may recognize that place because that is where Samson was from, indicating that it was probably, that's why we think this was written earlier in the book because that's when the city got its name and we're told in Samson later that's where he was from. So that's part of the reason why we think that. Now they are extremely weak. Samson the strong man is going to come. But look at verse 14. In reference to the idols, it is said, So now you know what you should do. We have a tipping point in the story. Will they burn the place to the ground? Had the Danites been faithful, they would want to take Micah's, all of his stuff, and just burn it to the ground. Will they burn it to the ground, and will they restore true worship in the land at the tabernacle, which is at Shiloh? Or will they adopt the practice? Will they amend their religious convictions to even further their idolatry? Note in verse 24. (laughs) And Micah said, you have taken away my gods, which I made. (laughs) His gods are pathetic. False gods controlling men who think they're controlling their gods. In the final section, the tribe of Dan makes a mistake. Well, it's a sin, but it was a major misstep in their pursuit of the land. They destroy and then they rebuild Laish. They uh, they They named it Dan after their ancestor, of course. But idol worship continues in the city. And then we finally learn the name of the priest. Jonathan is his name. Jonathan. He is a descendant of Moses, we are told. He is appointed priest. So Dan is just like Micah. Alienation because of their own disobedience. Thievery because of their own disobedience. Back up in verse 5, we know that they do not use God's covenant name, Yahweh. They are far removed from the covenant things are bad Micah has lost it all to a people who never had anything all because of disobedience he went home Micah went home he was frightened he was scared he had invested so much in his idolatry he lamented over it here's the thing side note here a religion that leaves you emotionally destitute when you lose everything is a worthless religion With Jesus, we have everything, so what could we possibly lose, right? Now, the establishment of Jonathan, we know the priest's name now. He's a descendant of Moses. As a priest, this man, this is truly breathtaking. I mean, Moses. Not not some obscure person, right? He's a descendant of Moses. I mean, if anybody's faithful, it's Moses' kids, right? Within just a few generations, we have... Uh, utter compromise, religious concession—we have full-blown idolatry, we might say. This whole thing is completely fallen off the rails. The whole affair is mess is, is a mess. It piles up in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Now they took what Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him, and they came to Eliash, to a people quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. The Danites took what Micah had made, the false gods. They took a disobedient priest who could always be bought for a higher price. And then they took a city that didn't belong to them, a city that couldn't be defended. Wow. Tough guys. The whole thing is a disaster. It's a complete debauchery. And you're supposed to walk away reading this thinking, wow, is it really that bad? Yes, it's really, really that bad. Look at Judges 18, verse 31. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Eventually they would be taken from the land, but in the meantime, their intention is to refuse the true and proper worship of God at Shiloh while setting up a religion on their own terms and conditions. They have officially... Undone and unraveled what happened at Sinai. They have divorced themselves from the covenant. They have chosen idolatry. Now, you read a passage like this, what, how do we even apply it? Well, let's, let's talk. <laughs> idolatry, broadly speaking, is a reference to false religion. Uh, spiritual harlotry or adultery, what we'll cover next week, is typically in reference to immoral living idolatry which is distinct you can distinguish it from uh, immoral living and spiritual adultery that tends to relate in this context to how we worship god how do we serve god how do we honor god now the second commandment is clear You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who keep me in my commandments. Now, the first commandment, we studied this last year, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment pertains to a general prohibition against worshiping false gods. So Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, Allah, Buddhism, name it. If it's not Jesus Christ and the triune God, it's a false god. The first commandment says no. God does not tolerate the establishment of false gods before his face. That's the, that's the uh, first word of the Ten Commandments. Now the second commandment pertains to false worship of the true God. So there's a distinction between those two. Do not make things in order to use them as a mediation device for worshiping God. And here we have, in Micah's case, the very violation of that commandment. So God is to be worshiped on His terms, not whatever we drum up. So that's why I don't like fog machines and laser lights and things. It's just weird. The problem with making idols is that it immunitizes the transcendent. Transcendency means something that's out, out above, distinct, that's God. When we try to immunitize the transcendent, it means we try to capture that. It's, we try to capture the Lord of glory into a neat little package, into our own little box. This is what God is right? like, right? So how does a silver statue reflect the self-contained, infinite, absolute God it doesn't idol making edits god idol making makes him more palatable to our liking consciously or unconsciously wayward christians and the unregenerate they want a god in their image so they shave off the truths of the bible whatever they you know the truths that they don't like whatever their hearts find uncomfortable in order to make the transcendent more appealing to them this is especially pernicious when we try to make our confession of faith more acceptable to the world. The temptation to try and make Christ more palatable, more acceptable to the world is ubiquitous in our time. Christians everywhere, it seems like, have adopted pragmatism as their religion of choice. Oh, we don't speak hard truths about sexual identity and what law should be like. And we don't, we don't, we just... We don't do that because we just love. (laughs) Whatever that means. We just love. However, God is the one who breaks apart the stony hearts of men and culture, making us reflect Him in holiness. To worship an idol is anti-holiness or reverse sanctification. It's the changing of God, the transcendent, to fit our sensibilities. Now, how do we do this? Well, One way we do this is by actively ignoring those parts of the Bible we don't like. By refusing to apply God's standards for holiness in every area of life. Our work ethic, you know, our work ethic, how we talk to each other or how we talk about someone, how we view money, all of these other areas. And we do that by subjectivizing, subjectivizing God's Law, word, and his moral commands. We, we, we view him as too burdensome, so we have to t- change him to make him fit. You know, God couldn't care that much, right, about all this wokeism and nonsense. He can't care that much about, uh, you know, what's taught in kindergarten classes. You know, I'm against those things being taught in public schools. I'm against prayer in schools. I'm against government schools. So <laughs> that's kind of how this works. We're against all of it. But But we can't act like God doesn't have something to say about these issues. When we depersonalize God, He goes from being Lord to being a servant, a servant of us. We loosen His demands while making ours stronger. That is, dear church, the heart of idolatry. So don't ever find yourself saying things like, well, (laughs) I prefer to think about God like this. I know that that's how He's presented in Scripture, but I prefer. To think about, God's more like this. And usually that's so that I can do that. Christianity is, in fact, a religion based on revelation. The revelation of the self-contained, absolute creator, God. It is not a pick-and-choose religion based on your preferences. Brothers, we are not pragmatists. We are image bearers of the one true king. All men everywhere are commanded to align themselves with God as He is revealed in His Word. That's just Christianity 101. That's why knowing and studying and pouring yourself over the Scriptures is so vital to your life. Know it. Pour yourself over it. Submit yourselves to it. And consequently, I think that's why Christianity is in such a mess today. Christians simply don't know their Bibles. Which means that they don't know what God demands of them, which means they can edit away. And as a result, people want God from the dollar menu their way. (laughs) Reductionistic Christianity is a damnable Christianity. Syncretistic Christianity, one that is indecipherable when compared to the world, is also a damnable Christianity as well. God is to be worshipped and submitted to, not manipulated and molded. It is simply not possible for there to be no religious conviction. Rather, we all know no neutrality, right? It's not whether there will be religious conviction. It's which convictions. Which convictions are going to take root in a man's heart? And what will be the resultant fruit? You know, I, and this is the big thing today. Religion's coming back. It's very popular. You know what they say. Well, I'm a spiritualist. I'm not a religion guy. I'm spiritual. This is the postmodern Name it, you, you know. I'll take the number five version of God with a Diet Coke, right? That's, that's the Christianity we have right now. And it's all like, I'm spiritual, meaning I eat at the, the dollar menu too with other religionists, but I'm not like them. <laughs> I'm a spiritualist, not religious. Guess what, that's religion, right? No creed but Christ, or no creed but, well, that's a creed, so you, that's defeating. Religion is man's response to the Word of God. Religion is man's response to the Word of God. And it will either be conformity to it or rebellion against it. That's it. And only those are the only two options. And I have to say, friends, like it's a rare case. It's a rare case, especially in pastoral ministry. But it's a rare case for it to be at least publicly acknowledged that yeah, you know, for a long time, I really messed up the doctrine of the Trinity. And I was teaching it wrong. To think of men like T.D. Jakes, whose modalism is still promulgated and put out there. That's a heretical teaching of the Trinity. So either we're going to be in conformity to it and do our best to labor over it, to know it, to believe it, to change ourselves to fit it, or we'll be in rebellion to it. Now, this passage teaches us that sin makes us as hollow as the idols that we choose to follow. The Bible often warns don't make things in order to worship God because you become like that which you worship. That warning is all over the place the prophets and even the book of Psalms. Idols overpromise, they underdeliver. Idols can only take, they can never give. And the reason is because the human heart can only worship, it can never receive that worship. It can't, it's not capable of receiving such glory. And know this, I said it before, God does not rubber stamp our idolatry. We are not free to imagine God in our own way, and neither is the worst sort of atheist. The problem with humanism, and that's what we're up against today, is that in its rejection of the self-contained absolute God, man will spend his days absolutizing some other aspect of creation. Karl Marx absolutized the economic aspect. Everything is economic struggle, and thus you get communism, right? Pythagoras said that everything is number, um, absolutizing mathematics, um, the numerical aspect of creation. Evolutionists like Darwin absolutized the biotic aspect of creation, saying that all we have is biological things that are just sort of moving forward, indeterminate, and that's just the way it is. You remember Sigmund Freud. Freud absolutized the psychical aspect or the sensitive aspect. Everything is just your psychology. Statists absolutize the juridical aspect of life. They want the state to be the center of everything. Pietism absolutizes the religious, separating it from the rest of life. So only if you pray and read your Bible are you doing the right thing. We can never talk about things from the pulpit or at the church potluck. See, the point is, the created order is to be distinguished from the creation. Excuse me, the created order is to be distinguished from the creator. And when we turn that worship and service of God that is due him, and we start worshiping and serving some aspect of creation, we have idolatry in the land. But this passage isn't even primarily about fashioning idols. I don't know many of you who are going home tonight and bowing down to an idol you've erected on the mantle. If so, we need to talk, but (laughs) this is not even really primarily what it is. Paul says in Colossians that idolatry, uh, covetousness is idolatry. But what we're dealing with is a syncretistic religion. That's really what, if you pull back a little bit, that's what this passage is forbidding. Syncretistic religion. It's the process whereby men imagine the transcendent God to be something other than what he actually is. And the worst sort of delusion, friends, is the trying to convince yourself that the truth that God has presented to us in his word isn't really true because it doesn't fit what you say or you think or you say or you want it to say. The quickest, how do you make, here's how to make an idol. The quickest way to make an idol is to imagine, imagine God to be the type of God who validates whatever you think. Man, is that prevalent. The delusion is strong with that one. Micah's proof that you can can be set on a path to what you perceive as being complete religious faithfulness. And you think you're just doing it all right, but ultimately you find yourself disapproved by God. Because you're trying to justify what you think. Usually no one is first in line to admit that they're worshiping and serving God on their terms and not... His terms. Maybe after some humiliating thing like having your property stolen, do you maybe wake up and realize how stupid you were being? Micah's stuff is gone. Oh, wait, that's my stuff. Oh, maybe he knew. And all that's to say is we kind of close here. We shouldn't be slipshod about our repentance. We shouldn't be uh, careless about it. We don't assume anything except for the fact that all of us need the grace of God each and every second of every day. Don't think for a second that your life is 100% in line with God perfectly. You have it all figured out. And said we should run to Christ. We should trust Christ. We should behold him as he truly is, not how we picture him to be or think him to be. See, Micah's story is proof that sincerity is not a mark of true spirituality. Micah was sincere. You can be the most devout most sincere, I mean, stubbornly recalcitrant spiritualist. I mean, you just are hardcore. You have all the bumper stickers, including the coexist one next to the one that says Christianity is terrible for the world. They're tolerant, right? You can be that way. There are plenty of those out there, but you can remain in your sins unchanged by the gospel. Sincerity is not the mark that we're going for. Rather, we're going for meekness. And in this context, we're going for a controlled strength, and courage to break up false religion, to break up the false peace, to be a stalwart for fighting for pure worship in the church and in the public square, to be absolutely resolute in holiness in your life and in your family's life and in the world around you. The culture in Israel was shaped by their worship of God, uh, which, as we've seen, their worship wasn't very good because it was not the right God. Culture itself is the expression of all of our religious proclivities. And if we want reformation in our own life, in our families, in our churches, and in this nation, then we're going to have to set ourselves like a flint towards the audacious claims of the comprehensive gospel. And no matter what comes, be resolute and unmoved. We saw what happened the past two years, what the church's response was. It was not resolute and unmoved. Idolatry in the land can only be purged when the hearts are set aflame by the demands of the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. God, you have given us your word. Father, we thank you for what you have uh, given us here. This truth, this book of Judges, there's so much richness there. And I pray that you uh, you would bless our efforts as we try to understand it as we uh, try desperately to align our lives to your word. God, would you be gracious to us? So we pray now that your spirit would stir us. In Christ's name, amen.